So as we think of a designer, the, the creator, God, and that in the beginning, he had a plan. He had a design for us as human beings. As men and women, he had a design for us. And he also had a design for what it looks like for us to live in, in healthy relationships, to build healthy, life-giving relationships God's way. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about our purpose. We're going to talk about our identity. We're going to talk about our self-image and how to have a proper understanding of God's design for us. This is a foundation as we look at life and we look at uh, in, in, you know, basically what God is wanting us to do in this world. But here's the problem we face. The problem that you and I face in our culture is that there are all kinds of conflicting ideas, messages, and stories out there, right? Stories that define our purpose, or our identity, or our self-image in ways that are not consistent with God's design for us. I mean, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What makes me valuable? What makes me worthwhile or worthless and of no value? These are all the conflicting images, stories that we hear on a daily basis in our world and in our culture. And we've, if we're honest about it, we've all struggled, right? We struggle with our identity because we're taking in messages that are confusing on a daily basis. I mean, we often look in the mirror and we don't like look or we don't like what we see. Take a look at this picture, this image. What do we hear sometimes? The voices that tell us that we've learned from our culture. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough, not athletic enough, not good looking enough, not rich enough, you know, fill in the blanks. I'm not enough. And we look in the mirror and we say, who am I? What is my identity? I don't feel like I'm enough. And in our culture, then we read, you know, we're filled with images, articles, online stuff about all the people who are enough. Famous people, stars, successful people, they're the people who are enough. And we say, I wish I were enough like them. Because all all of us, deep down, we want to be enough. The question is, how are we going to get there? I mean, it's it's inside of us. We're all desiring it. We're, We're searching for it. I coach, um, I coach my daughter's basketball team. This is a bunch of nine and 10-year-old girls, and uh, they are not focused at all, but they're super cute out there. Very frustrating, but cute. So it's, it's interesting. The last, last week at practice, one of the girls, we were doing a layup drill, and this gal comes in, and she makes her layup, and I'm kind of paying attention, kind of not. I'm looking at the other girls, and it's, she's just, she comes running at me, and she's like, did you see that? Did you see my skills? She made the bucket, and she played it all out for me, her own instant replay. She's like, yeah, I'm enough. Did you see that? And then, um, then yesterday, in yesterday's game, it was late in the game, my daughter made a basket um, that put us ahead for good, and it was an important basket, but... So she makes the basket, everybody's turning to run down the court, and she stops and does something like this. <laughs> right in the middle of the floor. Because she wants to be enough. We all 
do? The question is, how do we enter into God's story so that we can get a sense and understanding of what it means for us to be God's child, his son and daughter? All right, so it's, it's critical to hear the story. It's critical for us to hear the voice of God. And so we have to start at the beginning. And this is going back to the very beginning of the story, to the scriptures, the way Moses told it. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis, is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's a powerful, uh, you know, very much packed sentence. In the beginning, God created everything. And so that means there's a personal being who's created the universe, a God who has made everything and made us for a certain purpose, the God of the Bible. And to many of us, as we hear that, I mean, that's just the second thought to us. We're like, of course, that's what I believe. But for some of us, we struggle with it because it's not what we hear in our culture, right? Day after day after day, this is a contrary statement to what we hear and experience in our culture. But here's uh, some, this is a very important statement for all of us. It kind of sets the foundation of where we're going over the next few weeks. It's this. What we believe about God defines how we understand ourselves our purpose, our identity, and our self-image. So what we believe about God defines how we understand ourselves, our purpose, identity, and self-image. And that's the challenge that you and I face every day in our culture because our culture, and science in particular, uh, believe that the idea of one creative God, the God of the Bible, is unacceptable. In fact, um, if you're in academics or higher education, that's typically pushed to the side. They say that's, that's not the story that your life needs to be defined by. So if you look at science, science by definition, as we look at naturalism or materialism, by definition excludes God because science wants to be objective. So a scientist would say there's we don't start with God. There's no room for God. We're beginning with this closed system trying to understand how our world works and how life works. But here's the problem. Without God, that means the beginning of that system starts this way, that all of life is produced by accident, by accident without intelligence. Life occurred in an undirected, undesigned way through evolution and a process of natural selection. Therefore, there's not much difference between us and other living things. There's no design. There's nothing particular about us. It's us surviving and becoming stronger than the next person or the next animal or whatever it is. Now, this is a fine hypothesis, but the problem is this. It has an impact on how we view ourselves in the world. It has an impact on our value as human beings. It has an impact on our purpose. It has an impact on our identity. And that impact causes our value to fall. And there's lots of confusion. Now, I'm not saying ignore science. Science is an amazing gift to us. 
There are many scientists who have discovered incredible things not only about the universe, about, but about us as human beings that are so important to our self-understanding. And that's why it's good in the scientific community to see a growing community of scientists who believe in intelligent design. Now, they don't believe in creationism, but they believe intelligent design. And, and that means there's this, it's a scientific theory or approach that believes, based on the evidence, the universe and all living things are best explained through an intelligence cause, intelligent cause, not an undirected random one. Now, I thought this is really interesting because one of the discoveries in science over the years, really in the last 60 or so years, is DNA and what DNA looks like. We all have DNA in our bodies and our systems. And DNA is um, just this massive uh, you know, train of information. I mean, encyclopedia after encyclopedia of instructions and data and code that helps our bodies or directs our bodies to create proteins so that we can have life and health. It's a design code. I found this interesting. This is what uh, Bill Gates said about DNA. Bill Gates, the super successful uh, business guy who doesn't necessarily believe in God. He says, DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. Now think about that. Bill Gates, Microsoft, he brings in the best of the best to write software for his companies. And he says, the DNA in human beings is, I mean, cannot be compared with anything that we've done. It's vastly greater. And so, you know, you wonder, what does Bill Gates believe about God? He says, I don't know if there's a God or not, but I think religious principles are quite valid. And here's what he said more recently. He said this. He says, now, science is filled, um, you know, some of the realm of the things that we don't understand, not all, uh, that religion used to fill. But the mystery and the beauty of our world is overwhelmingly amazing. And there's no scientific explanation for how it came to be. To say that, uh, that, to say that it was generated by random numbers, that does not seem, you know, to be, or it's, he said it seems to be uncharitable is what he said, but it doesn't seem to make any sense. And he said, I think it makes more sense to believe in God. But exactly what decision, decisions in your life you make differently because of it, I don't know. So he's just basically saying, I don't know. But there's some intelligence behind life. And we believe that's God. The personal God who's created us for purpose, for identity, for relationship. And so there are three things really that we need to come away with today as we kind of set a foundation. The first is that God created you and he created me for a purpose. That's a starting point. God created me for a purpose. I'm not an accident. No matter what your parents said, no matter what you've heard from other people, you are not an accident. You were created by God for a purpose. And secondly, you and I were created in the image of God. Number three, and you and I were made to join him through Christ 
in his creativity and loving care of the world. Now, that is what should define us. And the question is, how do we enter into that? How do we begin to believe that? How does that begin to inform how we go about every day, we think about ourselves and think about our purpose in the world? God created you for a purpose. You were created in the image of God, and you were made to join him through Christ in his creativity and loving care of the world. Let's listen to the story once again. Genesis chapter 1. This is the sixth day. So God's creating. He brings light out of the darkness. He's moving things around. He's splitting land and oceans and skies and space and all these different things. And he's beginning to create plants in every form of of plant life. And all this amazing stuff is happening in the oceans and sea creatures. And then on the sixth day, we hear this. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will uh, reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food, and I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he'd made, and he saw that it was very good. Each day as God created, he said, this is good as the day ended. And then on this day, the sixth day, when human beings were created for a specific purpose, he said, this is very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. Now this is our story that sets the framework for our lives the very foundation of what it means to be a human being and to pursue life and health and understand our purpose and identity in the world. I mean, only creatures, only we were the only creatures, human beings, made in the image and the likeness of God. Now, before we define that, I want us just to to sit there for a moment. I mean, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, let's think about the significance for us as human beings. We were made unique, given a specific role and purpose, a higher purpose to carry out in this world. Charge and care for the animals and the plant world and the environment, all these different things. That's you and that's me as a human being. Well, listen to how this impacted David. King David in the Old Testament He had an incredible uh, heart for God. He wrote many of the Psalms. And listen to what he says in Psalm 8. He says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them, that means you have made us a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made human beings rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swims the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that means each one of us made in the image of God, branded by God, has incredible value a unique honor and responsibility. So that means, I mean, think about it. If, we're, uh, if we are uh, made in the divine image, that means there's something special about us. That means you can look in the mirror later today, and instead of seeing all the things you're not, you can say, I'm enough. You can say, hey, what's up, your majesty? That's you, Right? Now, I understand we have a problem with that some days where it's like, yeah, I got it all going on. I'm enough on my own. But the reality is God has made us in his likeness with tremendous value. You have great worth. All right. Now, here's a a phrase that maybe you picked up as I read the text where it says, before we get to what does it mean to be made in the image of God, the text tells us that God says, let us make them in our own image. And you may wonder, if you haven't heard it or thought about it before, what is is the text saying here? God says, let us. Who's us? And there are different explanations. You know, there are, uh, you know, all these scholars who do research uh, on the scriptures, the ancient Near East, Hebrew, you know, some say, well, that's just kind of a, a plural, it was a plural word that was used. So a plural form that shows basically the, the majesty, the greatness of God. So it's kind of a superlative saying, this very awesome, most amazing God created human beings in his image. But there's, there's nothing like that throughout the scriptures. So there's nothing in, in the history that's written. You don't really find that. You know, some say that he's saying, let us. That means God's saying, he's talking to the angels. He's saying, let us, you know, along with the angels, make these human beings in our image. The problem there is angels were created by God. So angels weren't involved in the creative process of human beings, They were there, they were giving glory to God, but that really doesn't make sense with what we know through the scriptures. And so what makes the most sense in this very early on cryptic way, God's showing his personality, that he's a triune God. At the very beginning of the scriptures that there's God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship together. Before Jesus came into the world and took on flesh, he was with God, the Son of God. And so 
even though it blows our mind to consider that there's one God who has this personality that's distinct, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It shows that God, from the very beginning, made us for relationship. He was a God who knew relationship. He didn't live in isolation. He created for a reason so that we could partake the greatest relationship of all, to be known by the God who made us, to be in relationship with the God who made us. And so uh, we'll be able to talk more about that as we go on. So what does it mean, be, what does it mean, uh, mean to be made in the image of God? Now, let's go back to the, the history and the context when Moses spoke these things. I mean, Moses wrote it. He wrote it after Israel had come out of Egypt. They were under Pharaoh and enslaved and had experienced many hardships. And Moses wrote these words as they came out of Egypt. So when the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, heard these words, I mean, it was like mind-blowing to them. Because they knew that Pharaoh was the great king in Egypt. And so Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and he's starting to say, you know what? You were created in the image of God. Now, they knew in their culture that only the kings were made in the image of God. Because Pharaoh, like other great kings, would say, I'm the image of God. I'm the divine one. In fact, most kings believed that they were divine themselves. And they represented the gods to the people. And so what would they do? They would set up images of themselves all over the place. I think we've got a couple here. You see these massive statues and icons. If you go uh, through ancient literature, you see this. And you go to Egypt today, you see it in the pyramids. Go to the next slide This is how kings would basically show, look, look at my greatness. Look at my image. It's all over the place. This is why you must submit to me because I promise I'll take care of you if you're an obedient person, an obedient people. And that's what the Israelites were familiar with. They were nothing. They had no value. They were slaves to the king And yet Moses says, you were made by a greater king. You were made by the God who's made all things, and he made you in his divine image. You see, Moses had a better story to tell than they knew or experienced in their world. Moses had an accurate picture of the world for them to begin to live their lives in and understand their identity as the people of God. They were enough. They had value. In fact, they had just as much value as any king. And they were called to serve the great king. Now, um, we don't have time to go into detail on, okay, the image of God. There's all these different components. You know, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, there are different things that we could point out. Um, about us being made in God's image. But the main thing that Moses was trying to communicate, this most simple, profound reality, was that you and I, as he told the Hebrew people, you and I were created by God to represent 
him in the world. We take on the image of God. That means wherever we go, God's image goes. God's representatives go. And when we're lined up with what God wants us to do, we're always saying, look how, look how great our God is. I mean, it spans, it's not just here in San Antonio, right? United States, it's all across the globe where God has people who represent him as his image. We were made to represent God, to be God's masterpiece, to show his goodness and presence to our world. So here's the problem. Our world's messed up. It's fuzzy for us, right? Part of the story very early on in the scripture is Adam and Eve were given a choice, rather whether they would trust God or try to be more on their own. And so they were deceived, they fell, they sinned, rebelled against God, and we, we start life in a broken world like that. All across the globe, we see the brokenness because the image of God is not pure anymore. It hasn't been destroyed, but it's affected. Every part of our image is affected by brokenness and by, by sin. You and I, we can't see anything perfectly clear. That's why we need God's direction and perspective in our lives. But think of it in our world, the universe, or, you know, all across our globe. We see brokenness. We experience it. There's disease. There's illness. There's hate. There's racism. There's abuse. And all these great evils across our world. And yet, you and I, as we understand how we've been created and that we've been created for God and by God, and as we see the importance and significance of what Jesus has done to bring us back into relationship with God, we begin to understand that we are called and that we have purpose to be a part of this creative project, this life-giving, loving, caring project where you and I extend ourselves to other people in the world to show the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Where we go to the people who have no value, who are forgotten, who aren't enough, who are unnoticed, and we share with them how valuable they are as we represent God. Here's what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3. He says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters. And when you believe in him, when you put your faith in him, he lives in all of us. And we begin to see and notice and remember on a daily basis that when we look in the mirror, we have been called to share God's image and his goodness and his love with the people that we come in contact with. So what does that mean for us? 
I mean, the starting point for all of us is this foundation that you are created by God. You're not an accident. Secondly, you have been made in the image of God to reflect his likeness to other people, to represent him in the world. And then lastly, to share his creativity, his love, and his care. So how can you and I share his love and care with others? Well, that's one of the things that we're, um, we try to be focused on and diligent as a community at Rock Hills. That's why we, we serve and we do mission trips and we do all kinds of things where we can go to people and show them God's love. And yesterday, uh, we were at the clubhouse. There were a number of uh, Rock Hillers at the clubhouse, which is a place for people with uh, mental handicaps, uh, you know, mental... Uh, uh, they're the kind of people in our world that have no value. They are um, looked past. They're not noticed. And yet, there are a group of rock killers that went to spend time with them, to care for them, to love them, to meet them where they are, to find out what's important to them, where they could come away saying, yeah, God is with these people. And there are, uh, there are lots of different uh, you know, stories we could tell. There's, uh, I read about a, uh, a photographer up in Austin. And he's part of a church that we're uh, connected with up in Austin. And he, he had a, kind of a, an idea where he wanted to go on the streets of Austin and begin taking pictures of the homeless. And uh, not just to do his own photo shoot or, or write some commentary on, But he called it, there's no homeless in heaven. And his desire was to go out and take some pictures and get to know these people, real people who had stories, who'd been through stuff. And so as he asked if he could take pictures of a variety of people in different situations, um, he got to know them. And he started asking questions about their life. And he asked them, you know, how do you experience God? I mean, do you experience God in the streets? Does God help you? Is, Is he present with you. And there's this one guy that you ran across. The guy's name is Hawkeyes. And I've got a picture of a, this is a homeless guy. This is not, this is not Hawkeyes. But I mean, it's just like a million faces that we see out there, right? We, we know people live in the cities. We know that they have nothing. They do whatever they can to get by. And Hawkeyes and his wife, Lady Hawk, had been living on the street for years. And Hawkeyes, I mean, he grew up in an abusive home. His dad kicked him out at an early age, and he's lived on the streets as long as he can remember. He and his wife live in a tent in a wooded area, I guess right outside of Austin, or right, right you know, somewhere off the, the city. And so this photographer got to know Hawkeye and, uh, Hawkeyes and to hear his story. And, um, you know, Hawkeye said, as he was taking some pictures, he said, you know, I've never, I've never even owned a picture. Here's a guy who's never held a picture. And so the photographer came back, you know, like the next week or sometime later, and he brought him this beautiful eight by 10 of Hawkeyes, this tough guy, and his wife, Lady Hawk. And he had some other photos of them as well, and he gave them to him. And so Hawkeyes, he held it like it was his most prized possession, and he began to weep. This strong, tough 
dirty guy weeping. And then he opened up his arms and he gave the photographer this huge, dirty, loving hug, embrace. Because he experienced love and value for one of the first times in his life. You see, that's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel that affects us, it affects you and me, and also affects the way that we live as we share it with others. You know, for our, for our family, it's kind of the, the question for all of us. What has God put on my heart? What, what is there in my heart, you know, something that is nagging at me, something that I feel I've got to do something about? Um, and for, for us and our family, um, it's orphans. And, you know, for the, the last few years, you know, Candace and I have had, you know, a, a desire to do something for orphans. And so as we began talking about it years ago, it was like, oh, compassion and world vision. You can support orphans across the world. And so we did that. You know, we've had a, a gal that we supported, you know, I don't know, the last few years. And so it's a, a monthly uh, amount of money that you pay, and it's not terribly significant, and it's not that difficult. But that started a process for us as we began praying through, you know, what, what can we do? And Candace, she grew up as one of seven kids. Now, the interesting about Candace's family is the first two, the oldest siblings in her family were adopted because her parents were told they couldn't have kids at the Mayo Clinic. So they adopted two kids, and then uh, Candace was born. Wow. <laughs> the shock. Here she comes. And then four more. Seven kids. But from the very beginning, for Candace in her life, adoption was something important to her. Orphans were something that she thought of. And we began you know, studying and praying and researching the plight of orphans across our world. And there are just you know, millions and millions of kids. But we made a decision that we wanted to pursue adopting a child uh, about three years ago. And so we started sorting through it and trying to figure out where and when and starting our process. And uh, so we decided on Columbia. And we were going to adopt a child from Columbia. And so we spent a year, this is 2012, we spent a year getting all of our dossier, our file, all this. I mean, it's just this long process. All these details that need to be covered. And all along, you have to get to the end of this where your file's complete before you can even look at being matched with a child. And so here we were almost complete with our file. This is 2013, about halfway through, and we got a call from our agency saying Columbia had just closed to international adoptions for kids under eight. And we were devastated. I mean, here we'd you know, been planning, praying, envisioning what it would be like to have a Colombian child in our home, and that wasn't going to happen. And so we had to spend a couple of months kind of churning through, okay, where in the world? We're committed to adopting. We've already made this commitment. We're, we're carrying through. And so we chose China. And, uh, and we had to almost start all over. There were a few things that we could pass on, but we had to start all these other documentations again. We had to go through another home study, this incredibly long process, until we got to last summer and everything was set with our file where we could get matched with the child. 
And last July, we were introduced to this beautiful little gal, Lou. We call her Lulu. We're going to give her an American name. But this is the little girl that we get to go meet for the first time and get in about three weeks. Now, here's the thing. Um, We started with Colombia. We moved to China. Our goal from the beginning was to adopt a little girl who wouldn't have much of a chance in her home country. God knew it was Lou from the beginning. He knew. He put the adoption process on our heart and we just started taking one step after another. And now we get to start the exciting process. We go to get her. Uh, We'll experience some of China. But then we come home and we begin the challenge of raising a new daughter who speaks no English. (laughs) So it's great faith all along the way. And the amazing thing is God is going to bring our family together in an amazing way over the next few weeks. All because we, we simply wanted to take that step to represent God, to bear his image, to show his love and care for somebody who didn't have a family, who doesn't probably know anything about God, and yet now she's going to be a part of our family. And we all have this stuff, we have these things, we have these people, these burdens that God is putting on our hearts. And the question is, God, how can we step out? How can we share your love? Because God has a purpose for each one of us. He has a design for each of you. And I want you to be affirmed in that. And I know that God is going to continue to do remarkable things through this community as we take steps in faith. Thank you.